0: Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show, not your grandma's cancer show. I'm Tatum Durock and today we are talking about genetic cancers. We know there can be layers of complexity and grief with cancers which have affected family members as well as increase our risks. And I have two amazing guests with me today. Helen was a teenager when she was told the news that she carries the BRCA1 mutation, and Cara was 32 when she heard she had Lynch syndrome. And I've got both of them with me over Zoom today. Welcome, both of you thank you hello so Cara you are returning to the podcast it's so nice to have you back I
1: am.
0: it's
2: so good to be back it's always lovely to chat with you
0: oh so um because it was a while ago that you were on um yeah. could you tell me a little bit about your life when you were first diagnosed
2: yeah so I'd I was diagnosed when I was 32 I'd um celebrated turning 30 for quite quite a while, to be honest, um, with a few trips, which was great. Um, and after I turned 30, I started to get some kind of extreme tiredness, some niggling symptoms, nothing necessarily specific to one thing, but I just didn't feel quite right. Um, and I went to my GP and it took about 12 months. Um, I was originally diagnosed um, with anemia and was being treated for that. But... I had a kind of quick drop in um, my blood count and that was when I was sort of referred for the colonoscopy and they did the stool test which revealed um, that I had a tumour in my bowel um, um, which was later then confirmed as a stage for um, diagnosis, so with um, spread to my liver. So, um, 32 started chemo, um, went through the chemo, then had surgery which removed um, the tumour in my bowel successfully had a bit more chemo. Um, and then I had a um, two-part liver resection, which again went really well um, and was followed up with more chemo. Um, probably quite a long story through all of it, but that's kind of the the basics of it. And it was during that time, because I um, was 32, my father had had bowel cancer in his 40s. Um, my surgeon was definitely keen to have me referred um, for um, genetic testing. The original biopsy had shown a lack of one of the um, proteins or the mismatch repair DNA um, that was um, linked to Lynch syndrome. So I was referred um, for that genetic testing, which is when I then found out um, that I did have Lynch syndrome.
0: Cara, that's so much. I mean, to go from anemia to mm-hmm. being diagnosed, I mean, just just that, Um you know, thinking that you know might need to eat a bit more iron. To yeah. you know, actually, you've got a tumor, and then so much treatment, and then finding out about Lynch syndrome, and what what does that mean for you? Like, what what, what does Lynch syndrome do in terms of um, increasing your risks?
2: Um. So. For me in particular, I've got a lack of expression in what's known as like MSH2. Um, so it puts me at a high lifetime risk for um, bowel cancers. Um, it put me at a high, higher than the average population risk um, for kind of endometrial womb can- cancers and ovarian cancer. So, they're kind of the three big ones that are really elevated um, risks. Um, but there are several other cancers as well, where you've got kind of a fractionally higher, um, I keep saying the word risk, but it is mm-hmm. a fractionally higher risk than the average person of developing that cancer in um, your lifetime. And it's all to do with the fact that it's in these mismatch repair proteins, that, um, that which is how cancer um, is formed really as your cells, you know, grow out of control. Um, I have nothing to repair that MSH to, um, which is where the cancer develops. So the risk is there, even though I've had bowel cancer once and been treated successfully, could get a second primary bowel cancer that is almost unrelated to the first, but related to the Lynch syndrome. Um, And in treatment, Um, I think my treatment was probably more successful than some variants of bowel cancer that you can have um, because it was the Lynch syndrome, Um, but it's not treated well, um, or they now know not treated well with chemotherapy, but reacts to immunotherapy, and I will be in um, surveillance through life, which is a good thing um, because the hope is that any future cancers would be um, caught early. Um, or an early stage um, and be very treatable which we know is really important in that kind of diagnostic
0: Massively. pathway and and um, tell me about your dad so do you remember your dad going through bowel cancer
2: yeah I have vague memories. Can't say that I have the full understanding, but there's definitely things that I can remember back when he had his surgery. Um my parents were quite open with me at the time. I was in my final year at primary school, so I remember his the surgery aspect of it. I don't really I know he had chemotherapy, but I don't really remember um any of that. I think it was just his recovery from surgery that and him being in hospital that stands out in my mind. Um, and at the time there was no talk about genetics. I think my dad actually asked the question to his GP but it wasn't as talked about or known about, the research um, wasn't
0: there as I suppose it is now. And when you were diagnosed, was your dad still with us?
2: No, my father unfortunately died um, six months, eight months or so before Um, my own cancer diagnosis so I was kind of seeing my GP at the time because of the symptoms I was having Um, and unfortunately my dad had um, a stroke and was admitted to hospital and unfortunately he he died from that so his death was not cancer related. Um, He'd lived a a long healthy life after his cancer in his 40s but um, it was quite a not a sudden death but it wasn't an expected death he wasn't being treated for anything um so I was kind of dealing with the grief of that when I was kind of going through the investigations of what was wrong um with me as well um so it was it was a lot it was a lot in that year um and my granddad had died um in the few months previous to um my father so My mum had an awful lot to deal with, with the fact that it went from her dad to her husband and then um, obviously myself. And at the time of diagnosis, you've no idea how that's gonna play out either. So it was a a tough year. Um, I'd like to say that it's got easier and it has definitely has got easier, but there's still a lot of difficulty there, um, I would say emotionally.
0: Absolutely. It's, I mean, losing a parent is hard at any point yeah but almost you're grieving you know so soon after that that you're plunged into all that treatment that you went to Mm -hmm. and go ahead
2: yeah i was gonna say it made it like looking back on it it made it difficult for me as well to reach out to other people because i was i It's such a massive amount of loss that I was a bit like, I don't want to make friends with people that are going to die because I'm going to have to go through that or a variation of that again. So, it took quite a while for me from my diagnosis to actually dip my toe into kind of the cancer um, community and people reached out to me, so eventually I did. And it's one of the things, in some ways, I wish I'd been able to do sooner because the peer support has been one of the things that's definitely um, got me through. And still today, I um, go back to those people and you know have heart to hearts with them about um, what you're going through because people just don't, those people understand. They've been there.
0: Yeah, it's it's such a relief, isn't it? Getting when you finally get to talk. And yeah. I was, um, you know right when I was diagnosed, I was sort of warned off going into a cancer support group by someone that I wish I hadn't listened to. Mm. Um, But as soon as I did, you know, it was, my shoulders dropped, like the sigh came out of being around other people that, you know, were also like, no one had the answers. And actually all of us in there without any answers was really, um, really powerful hearing other people how they how they were dealing with things but you know I can see also through that time you had seen your dad survive bowel Mm -hmm. cancer so that how did that affect your treatment?
2: I think, um, and it's one of the things I've said from the beginning that it had a, a really positive effect on me because I, I listen to other people's stories of being, you know, um, in with their consultants when they're first being told, and the first questions are about, oh, am I going to die? Um, what's how long have I got? This, that, and the other. And to be honest, I do think whether that was naivety. Um, that's not what popped into my mind I wanted to know what they were doing but I think because my dad had had positive outcomes in my head I was going to have a positive outcome Mm -hmm. um at that stage I wasn't really thinking about the fact or how close um to death I was coming um so and I think that's been really important in how I've kind of gone through my treatment and the hope that I've had there um and I've I've been in some like tricky situations. I think sometimes it's easy to reflect back on it and go, well, actually, you know, the people that have been like that have been in worse situations or they've been um, in end of life care. But uh, there were points in my treatment path where, you know, they didn't know whether it was going to be that was the the end of it. And actually they couldn't do things. So, yeah, um, I appreciate my dad for surviving um, in many ways. Um, from that early diagnosis and I think we could do with a lot more um, positive stories out there about cancer survivorship as well. Um, I know it's got its difficulties and I know it it doesn't happen for everybody but um, it does for some of us and I think when you get to that stage it's also nice to know people that have been through that as well because it's not like stepping back into normal or I don't like the word normal, but back into life, like every other person, you're carrying a lot of trauma, you've changed, um, and you're still navigating things. And you really, well, for me, I emotionally have to navigate that feeling of being grateful that I'm alive and have survived um, my cancer to date. But also, that kind of like, dealing with the symptoms or the emotional outfall mm-hmm. that I have and actually making sure that I'm getting support for that because it's very easy to think I should be grateful that I'm alive when actually, you know, we deserve to be able to live a good, good life as well.
0: Absolutely I I love that you've said that Absolutely Because it's You true. know Feeling grateful Can be kind of a stick That we beat ourselves with Right mm. And some yeah. days are tough And some days Side effects are really painful um, How do you think Your dad Might have dealt with um, Your diagnosis
2: I think he probably Would have been devastated About the diagnosis diagnosis as i'm sure any parent would be about a child at whatever age being diagnosed with cancer um i think the one thing that my mum and i have talked about more of late is what would have he have felt about the lynch syndrome Mm. um i'm kind of glad that he wasn't around um to know that because i i don't know if there'd be some sense of guilt there being the parent that Well, I don't know that he necessarily had Lynch syndrome, but it's, um, you know, an assumption from the fact that he had cancer and then I carrying this gene. Um, But yeah, I think he might have felt guilty about um, passing that gene on. I think it'd be hard to not do that. But at the same time, my dad was very good at, you know, taking things day by day. So yeah i don't know it's a a hard one
0: yeah absolutely and and can you tell me about 2021 when you were diagnosed again
2: yeah um so as if one cancer isn't enough in life um during the pandemic i was then diagnosed with a second um cancer early stage this time so um stage one womb cancer, um, which was found off the back of me experiencing um various symptoms um and kind of being pushed from my GP back into um the screening well screening appointment process. Um eventually I kind of went in thinking I was having a polyp removed but when that polyp was removed from my uterus um the surgeon wasn't happy with it he was like it looks suspicious and that was that just a punch in the gut because he didn't he didn't know at the time it was cancer but it was just the wording that he used I remember it very clearly and I was like there's no you know it's it's there's something there um and yeah a week later i had a phone call from them saying that they'd found cancer in the womb so they were going to have to proceed with more treatment um which was a hysterectomy so a total hysterectomy um and then because of the lynch syndrome so when i was talking with my surgeon um we discussed um the ovaries as well because obviously lynch syndrome has a high um risk around ovarian cancer so she was like it's probably recommended as you're coming up to 40 um, to have those ovaries out unless um, I suppose around you wanting to maintain them for fertility um, purposes um, but almost like, well, if you're going to recommend me taking them out at 40, (laughs) there's not exactly much time to recover from this. I'm not going to have a womb. So let's just – I just couldn't deal with the thought of potentially risking a third cancer um, that could have been in my control because I still grapple a little bit with that having known that I would have had preventative surgery eventually my worry was always that what if something happens before I get to that point mm. point? and you kind of, no one knows when it's going to happen but you have the conversations with your doctor and I was unfortunate that we, I found myself in that position so I didn't really want to let it happen again so I agreed to have my ovaries out with the rest of my womb so had that on none other than april the 1st of 2021 um which is ironic isn't it april fool's day um and yeah the surgery was okay like physically but the emotional outfall from that was like severe for me um both from the aspect of that kind of definitely knowing that you would never carry your own children um and just all the emotion of another cancer diagnosis and I think probably unresolved trauma from the first Mm. um, diagnosis as well. So it was a lot to deal with in those early months.
0: And were you also in menopause at that point as well? Oh
2: Yeah, yeah. Just throw that one in there as well. (laughs) Yeah, so surgical menopause and that was a rocky rocky start. Um, Still don't know if I'm there with that. I'm up and down all over the place, but you know, doing my best and I wasn't allowed to go on HRT um to start with um it's a kind of gray area Mm -hmm. um for mine because womb cancers are usually driven by estrogen um hence they recommend not having it unless it's so severe it's impacting daily life but then my um mine is Lynch driven so there. nobody really knows whether HRT would have an effect on it or not but they so the first kind of two years has been uh no we're not going to give it to you but now I've kind of not had any recurrence um I'm in those kind of conversations with my specialist at the moment as to whether we can just try a low dose to help with some of the symptoms that I'm still experiencing.
0: Kara there is so much that you have been through in your second diagnosis. I mean, I do think it, hearing you talk about the first diagnosis, you kind of buoyed up by your father's experience. Mm-hmm. There yeah. was, um, and you have an amazing um, Instagram <laughs> where you're a hiking and <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. high heels and killer tell me the name of it, it was like high heels and <laughs>
2: boots and killer heels yes
0: yeah you know the, there was such sort of momentum almost in the way that you you talk about going through that and almost like as you went through it again there's it so much tied up in both the, the risk factors with the Lynch syndrome and the menopause, but having your womb removed, having your ovaries removed, and how that affected your your processing of all of it, because um, it's cumulative. Yeah,
2: it's massive.
0: Yeah,
2: um, and I think you can probably under no one can prepare you for it i think is the thing beforehand like you hear people talk about the loss and the grief that you feel but it's not until you're in it that you realize the kind of extent of that and it's Mm -hmm. not it's not just in that moment that you feel it you're then gonna relive those moments at different points in your life as well um i suppose like with any triggers for things that actually we're so our societies are so set around a certain look of a family um and that including children that you can feel pushed to the kind of edges of that society and kind of left out even though there's so much to life without children as well um it's kind of just balancing that isn't it and finding your your new New, well it's not new purpose but finding your way forward um, and dealing with the loss of the life that you thought you would have yeah. which it, I mean I find it hard to come to the terms even with the fact that you feel such loss over something that you never had um, that in itself is quite difficult
0: it, grieving what is unseen to other people mm-hmm. a trajectory a uh, trajectory an assumption of where you are going to go that feels so real and connected to you, it, I think is is a really hard loss to bear and to describe. And it is, I mean, you just put that so beautifully. You said sort of being on the edges of what society kind of, the flow of society mm. And, and I think that derailment that cancer can do. Um, and it's, you know, not just outside of your own life, but outside of that connection with where you thought you were going to be and where other people are, where friends are, and you can see them yeah. in those places. So yeah. it, it in that way, it's very tangible. You can often see them yeah, having a life that definitely. you're like, oh, I thought that you I was going to be on it that. feel track.
2: like, yeah, that they're living out... they are living out the future that you might have expected for yourself and you know my future might have looked one way but I mean for somebody else going through this there'll be whatever they thought their future was gonna look like will probably have changed in many different ways and um it's it's difficult because friendship is um based on common ground as well lived experience um and I know um obviously I'm still friends with all my friends but I found it difficult I've I kind of had to put some space between myself and some of my friends mm. at first as much or prepare myself almost for the emotional it's not trauma but like I wanted to see my friends because they were my friends and they were who got me through me and got me through things and have supported me um but at the same time coming away from that even if times had been, like I'd had a really nice time, I found myself grieving as well because, again, you're just looking at what you thought you would have had and adjusting to what your life is now. Yeah. Um. And it's that's still ongoing for me. I'm very much in the midst of a, <laughs> I'm not going to say a crisis because that isn't the right word, but um, I've, I've trying to sort you know rebalance myself emotionally and psychologically um I and think it takes it takes time it and does. I'm just trying to learn to be kind to myself as well
0: yeah yeah
2: and in the meantime book a lot of holidays because they make me
0: happy <laughs> <laughs> I love that I want to bring Helen into the conversation here Helen how has it been to hear from Kara?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting hearing Cara's story because there's so many similarities between the two of us um, and I can relate to so many things that she has uh, said. So, yeah, it's been really interesting. Thanks for sharing, Cara.
0: And Helen, can you tell me uh, what was your experience of cancer in your family?
1: Um, so, my mum died from breast cancer uh, when I was 11, and her mum died from breast cancer when she was seven. So, it's kind of been in our family. Um, and yeah, so I found out that I was a carrier of the BRCA gene, um, as you said, when I was a teenager. So, when my mum died, it was 1994. And that's when they discovered they made the the discovery of the BRCA mutation. So they, um, she wasn't actually tested, but a, a doctor who my mum had worked with um, came and spoke to the family and were concerned about me and this uh, potential genetic mutation. Um, and I was I was thirteen at the time, and they wanted to get me tested, but decided it was, uh, I was too young. Um, I just think that that's such a young age to, mm. to know that information. So I um, talked about it as a, as a family and it was just like, no, that's too young. So uh, I waited until I was uh, 18 to find, go for that test. And it, you know, came back as having the BRCA1 mutation.
0: And that's really such a short period of time after losing your mum. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when they told you that news, did they give you anything to, you know, reduce your risks at that time? Did they really explain it to you?
1: No, not really. Um, I don't remember getting anything. um, But they had said that I would start getting mammograms when I was 25 Um, and that they wouldn't really do anything before then.
0: And can you tell me a bit about what are the risks with BRCA?
1: So depending on which BRCA gene you've got, either the one or two, there's a different percentage of increase in risk of getting breast cancer. So for me, it was around 80% of the chance of getting breast cancer, but uh, they didn't realize until uh, years later that there's also a link between getting ovarian cancer as well.
0: So, So at that point, you're 18 and you sort of think, well, I've got some time, like I don't even have to worry about going for mammograms until I'm 25. Um, it wasn't i had
1: you know with uh, my my great grandmother also died from cancer so i'd got these three generations above me that had died from cancer i'd almost written my own fate like i'd always like the chance was so high um i'd kind of like lived with this anxiety and I don't know, inner knowing that I was, that it was fairly inevitable that I would get cancer. So I was like really living from a young age and I really didn't want to get into, sucked into kind of like societal norms and traveled a lot. So uh, yeah, just that uh, not worrying. I think that worrying was always there at the back of my mind. Um, But I just didn't realise or didn't think that it would, that I would get cancer so young and that it wasn't going to be breast cancer.
0: So tell me, what were you doing in your life when you were diagnosed?
1: So I um, was teaching in the slums of India. Um, I had gone to India as part of kind of like my worldly travels and just felt so at home in the country and I'd gone back out I was determined not to get a real life proper job having done my degree I was just like (laughs) no no not yet Um, just with that inner drive to really live knowing that life can be taken away from you at any moment Um, and so I'd gone to teach in the slums and uh, I got a parasite and I came home and saw the doctor and I was like I think I've got a parasite and the doctor fobbed me off and so I was having uh, uh, bowel problems and digestion problems for you know quite some time I saw a dietitian and eventually I went back and saw a a different doctor a doctor that put the fear of God in me as a child and that but is no nonsense so I went back to her and I did have a parasite and I got treated for this. And as soon as I was okay, I went back out to India. But I knew that I was that, that there was something not quite right. My periods had changed, my bladder, like I was going to the toilet more frequently and I was more emotional. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was out in India teaching, having a great time. But the kids were were coming to me and they were like, saying your health's down go and see a doctor and I was like I'm fine you know that British no no I'm fine Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, knowing full well that at the back of my mind I'll do something about that when I get home um and uh my stomach like the last few weeks that I was there my stomach was swelling and it was really painful um and it was but it would go down after a few days and then I came back to England and my dad had made me uh, an appointment to see the doctor straight away. And they were like running tests for all sorts of tropical diseases and parasites and and everything. Um, and I was on waiting lists for scans and things. And then one doctor who was the doctor that uh, was my mum's doctor, and I'd known since like was my childhood doctor, he phoned me up and he was like Helen there's one more test I'd like you to do and uh it was a blood test and it was the um CA125 which is the ovarian cancer tumor marker and he invited me back in with the results and he sat there and he started to cry and he was just like I'm so sorry this is so unprofessional of me Um, but he'd you know he'd seen my mum die who was a friend of his he'd Seen me grow up, and he just said, you know, this should be between naught and thirty, and yours is nine hundred and forty-seven. And I was and he was like, I think you've got a malignant tumour. And in my mind, I sat there kind of like going, Why is that malignant, benign? Mm. What is what's the dodgy cancer? What's the one that's gonna potentially polish me off? And then, you know, he told me, and uh, it was just like, Oh god, how the hell am I gonna tell my grandma? my family um so yeah that's how I found out and within kind of like him telling me that that was probably a week of me landing uh back home and a couple of days later I was being rushed into hospital for emergency surgery looking like I was about six months pregnant
0: that you know to go from having a parasite Mm. and not being listened to about that, and then coming back and having a different experience with a, a doctor that was like deeply connected to you, yeah. um, and telling you news that you know to some degree you've been preparing for, but also been seizing the moment, living your life, doing the unexpected, going off to India. When you were plunged into the the surgery. How were you processing that at that time?
1: Um, I uh, It was just a kind of, I'm very pragmatic and I don't know whether it's kind of like uh, I'd shut down. I think it was a mixture of being pragmatic and um, having shut down and disassociated since my mum died and being like, right, well, the doctor said that he can do surgery and that he's going to get me better so let's go um and just signing the the kind of like papers to say you know we're gonna have to we might have to remove your womb and your ovaries or you know we're just gonna have to open you up and see what's going on um I was just like just get me better do what you need to do I like was very I don't care just do it
0: and what did they take out
1: so I had a full hysterectomy and pal- partial bowel reconstruction. The tumours—they said that it was like that I had one big tumour, um, and then he said that it was like a, a pepper pot, it was sprinkled everywhere. So they had to take some off my bowel. Well, no, my ovaries were stuck to my bowel, um, and uh, my—I had it on my pelvis, on the back of my bladder, and on my stomach. So they were able to like take those off and then yeah remove full full hysterectomy and partial bowel reconstruction
0: that's a huge surgery
1: yeah massive
0: and did they prepare you for the loss of your ovaries at such a young age
1: absolutely not absolutely not um i was never told i was never explicitly sat down and said you're going to experience menopause symptoms uh I was, I wasn't told anything like it. Well, it was the following year. So I, I was due to start my PGCE in the September and that diagnosis and surgery was in the August. So I postponed that for a year, have what I call my first cancer chemo gap year. And then went and did my PGCE the following year and trying to do that whilst going through the menopause was the worst year of my life like I could not think like it was like putting the key in a in the ignition and just getting nothing Mm. not even a little splutter my emotions were everywhere um and it was just not being able to think and here I was you know in charge of a class of 30 like emotions everywhere not being able to find words and not knowing what I was doing and and really, not myself. And I thought that I'd just kind of like bosh through chemo and carry on with life. But yeah, it really didn't go like that.
0: I can see Kara nodding um, with understanding about that because it, that's such a huge amount for you to be mm. dealing with. And then and then to have your brain not cooperating and your you know your aim is to get back to you know what you wanted to do with your yeah. qualifications and then that coming in and again another derailment really yeah and i think it says a lot about the power of you know, the menopause fog and effect on the yeah. brain that you've described that as one of the worst years of your life when you have been through so much
1: yeah hands down and um i think we'll probably come to it later but i i was able to go on hrt it was a it was that balance of you know your risk of reoccurrence and quality of life and at that moment like i i my quality of life was not not great at all and you know a hot f- I, I, when talking about menopause, in my mind, it was like hot flashes. Mm-hmm. but you know, having gone through it, uh it's f- so much more than that. So yeah, I had to go cold turkey on the HRT when I had reoccurrence and those two years, like post-surgery and then going cold turkey were hands down the worst years of my life. I would have taken surgery and chemo again for a year over going through menopause experience and anxiety and depression that comes with it yeah
0: yeah yeah it 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 can be so crazy making and so profoundly disorienting and again especially when you're younger the impact of that um when you're you are nowhere near the the natural age for that to happen um, and really, they're just, I mean, I know 10 years ago, no one was talking about this and no. no one was like really considering the impact. But having gone through so much, like that does really, really affect, you know. It, your your ability to recover your ability to process going forward and you've mentioned a recurrence so I, I wanted to ask you did you do risk reducing surgery and then get a recurrence
1: yeah so the following year so i was i was 26 when i was first diagnosed so i was yeah 26 and then the following year it was like uh, well before when I was talking about my the chemo and everything, um, it was risk reducing surgery was mentioned, but I had to get better from the chemo and recover, and my uh, immune system to have bounced back. So it was a year after I was diagnosed, um, I had risk reducing surgery. And um, it, yeah, it was that was tough. That was really tough for me.
0: So that was a double mastectomy.
1: Yeah, I had double. I had double mastectomy, and then I had um, under the pec muscle implants put in. And for me, I was, I because obviously it's a choice. Uh, you can choose to have this risk-reducing double mastectomy, but to me, you know, going from an eighty percent chance to a four percent chance, it's it's not a choice, right? Like it, it's almost a matter of kind of like living and, and dying or you know that's what it was in my mind because everybody that I you know my maternal line had died from breast cancer
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so yeah I opted for that surgery but it was yeah really traumatic and excruciatingly painful um, and yeah I didn't wear any tight clothes uh, for years after that
0: so did years. that affect your sense of self like your identity how you felt about your body
1: um yeah I think so definitely like I didn't get into a relationship and I wouldn't when I did start seeing somebody like I probably wore more clothes to bed than I did during the day it was like just don't touch me mm. um and yeah when uh yeah, definitely my self-confidence and my self-worth were, were affected by, by that more so than having a hysterectomy. To me, having a hysterectomy, like I, uh, unlike Kara, didn't experience that kind of like the grief of the family because I'd always said that I was going to adopt, like if I was to have children. And, um, so I haven't experienced that grief of, of not having that like what society tells us we should be doing and, and, you know, what a lot of women want in life.
0: So how long after that surgery were you diagnosed again?
1: So uh, I, I, so I was first diagnosed in 2010, and then I'd finally got back, finished my teaching qualification. I'd gone out to India. I'd done my master's in education. I'd gone back out to India and, um, I was turning 30 and someone said to me, Helen, I think you should get a real life, proper job. And I was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) So I reluctantly, uh, started my teacher, uh, actually teaching with this teaching qualification that I'd finally got. Um, and that was September, 2014 by then my CA 125 had already just started to creep above the 30. Um, and by November, they said that, you know, it's likely that your your cancer is back um, and I was awaiting scans. So yeah, I, it was confirmed later in that November and it had, I got, uh, it had mastecized to my lung. So I had lung surgery, I had a lobe of my right lung removed and chemo uh, again and um i had to go cold turkey on my hrt um and yeah the aftermath of that was uh horrendous because i'd gone i was juggling i'd finally met somebody that were in the waiting room uh that was of my age and had exactly the same cancer that i that i had and we'd been put on PARP inhibitors um which are a medication to either slow the progression of the disease or prevent it reoccurring. And although we had exactly the same cancers, her prognosis was, um, like she still had tumours. So she was, although we were both stage four, I was no evidence of disease and she was, hers were to put a halt on uh, the spread. Um, And she died and uh, I'd gone cold turkey on my HRT, I'd gone back to school and I was taking these tablets, uh, taking eight of these tablets as the kids were going out to break, and then coming back in, getting a bout of nausea, full on uh, menopause again, not being able to tell you what a fronted adverbial is or how to do my long division, and yeah, I was just like, I can't do this, I can't do this anymore.
0: That feeling of I can't do this mm. is so hard when I hear both you and Kara and really share this prag- pragmatism, this kind of one step forward, you know, you're plowing through so much and it almost sounds like you hit a bit of a wall at that time. Um, when did you because I know that you had mentioned to me about doing breath work and you'd had a bit of an epiphany during that time. What was it? Was that what turned the corner for you or were there other things that helped you when that, you know, kind of that wall of, I can't do this came up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when Fee was still alive and she was, we'd all, we timed our, uh, Fee's my chemo buddy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we timed us our, our monthly uh, sessions, uh, blood tests and everything, so we had them at the same day. Um, and she said to me one Monday, as I was so tired, moaning about school, she was like, Helen, what do you actually want to do with your life? And I, did, like, I didn't have to think. I was just like, I want to buy a big white van, I want to convert it with my dad, I want to go wherever the wind blows me and do what makes my heart smile. And she looked at me her with a bald head and me looking, you know, fit and healthy. She's like, why don't you do that? And I was like, <laughs> oh, don't I do that? And like that. And so I quit. I quit. I handed my notice in. Um, I quit. I bought my van. I converted it with my dad and started to go wherever the wind blew me. And uh, I ended up in Ireland and started cold water swimming and uh, then started breathwork, um, and I'm now, yeah, a breathwork practitioner, and the, the, the two of those have hands down changed my life. The cold water swimming uh, like has helped the um, chronic fatigue. I had really, when I landed in Ireland in my van, I had really bad chronic fatigue. It was like seeping into my bones and my brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I was asleep more than I was awake. But I started cold water swimming in this community down in Greystones. They just kind of like took me in. And it was um, the start of the pandemic. And at this point, I was having to go back every three months to get my blood tested and my my next tablets because as great as these tablets are they've got um an increased risk of developing leukemia so i have to have my bloods tested
0: Um, it's so unfair isn't it i I mean just like Uh, when you're kind of wading through so much risk you know and then the things that are helping bring more um yeah yeah
1: yeah so that it was kind of like i was on it it was when they were shutting the borders and uh i was like what do i need to do because i i was right next to the sea i was feeling the best i'd felt in years and so my oncologist was like if you can get your bloods done there and you can fax them over we'll send your drugs to your dad and your dad can send them out to you so that's what we did and i had nine months in lockdown not going into a hospital and although the threat of a of a virus that you know was exp- uh, affecting respiratory systems and being immunosuppressed was absolutely terrifying it was nine months of not stepping foot into a hospital being by the sea and I started just to feel better and that's when I um, did an online breathwork course and in that week, I shared so many layers of grief and uh, of holding in my body that I was like, "What is this?" And so, doing something that is works with the body instead of the brain, where I didn't have to talk about my experience, and it worked with the sensations in my body, um, was huge for me. Like, yeah. And being able to use the breath as a tool when in, um, you know, the waiting room or waiting for anxi- uh, for um, scan results and the anxiety, you know, we all know the term anxiety and things like that has been monumental for me. And yeah, do, the layers of grief from the loss of my mum and as well as going through all of the things
0: that I've been through. Um,
1: yeah, it's
0: been huge. Wow. Huge. So, I mean, there was something in there, it, like it took your chemo buddy, and I think someone it, that you identified with, you know, so much that you were there together, you know, yeah. every time. Them saying, you know, kind of to follow your passion, and mm-hmm. then really kind of exploring that, you know, creatively making your life.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And like, I'd
1: always lived like that. I'd spent my twenties, you know, traveling and doing things that I wanted to do, like knowing that life can be taken away, not just through people that have got, you know, genetic diseases, like anybody, anybody, one in two people get cancer now. And um, I'd lived like that, but I'd got sucked into what society tells us we should be doing You know, we should be working at nine till five. We should have, you know, a a family and all these things. And I'm just like, I've always been, even as a child, like was like, I'm a girl and you're telling me I've got to wear a skirt? No, I'm going to wear shorts. (laughs) I'm a girl and you're telling me I can't play football? No, I'm going to be the captain of the first girls football team. Like, I've always batted against that. And then, so when I've slotted in, I've had cancer twice. So it's just kind of like hello do what you want to do and uh just put my faith in the universe and it delivers it delivers
0: i'd love to bring kara in here how has it been to hear from helen
2: it's a mixture of emotions obviously it's it's lovely to hear all the things that she's done since um the last diagnosis and I can kind of understand. I haven't quite got to the point where I've kind of let go and chased my dreams yet, but I definitely understand that feeling of like, what am I doing? My life's for living. So happy to see that Helen's here and tried to live her best life, but also like all the trauma that we go through and the fact that sometimes you have to fight for things Mm. just to feel...
0: Better, Kara. You you did something really creative to get information out there. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea that you came up with?
2: Yeah. So I'm very cliched when it comes to cancer, and I've always wanted to give something back. Um, more. I've, I probably did more so from bowel cancer perspective, just because I'm. I feel like I'm. My second diagnosis feels raw still but i'd worked with bowel cancer uk um and i knew deborah um, dame deborah james um we were both diagnosed in the same year so we'd kind of kept in touch throughout in terms of treatment and we'd always kind of wondered how we could get bowel cancer out there and to be talked about more and obviously she did an amazing job of actually kind of breaking down the taboos around it um and when it came to her going into end of life care i just wanted to do some I felt helpless really. Anytime one of my friends is in those situations, you're like, well, I'm here if you need to talk. But it's like you feel helpless. Like you can't change their situation. Um so I just thought I'd try to do something um that I know all of us in the bowel cancer community had wanted to see. And um fortunate that I work for Marks and Spencers and I went to our CEO to see if we could get the signs and symptoms added to our own brand, um, Lou Roll within M&S. Um, he really resonated with my story, he had personal connection um, to bowel cancer as well um, and I was quite surprised to be honest but he, he said yes and within you know a matter of a week going from the first suggestions, everything was in motion to make that happen. I think the heightened kind of, I'm I'm not naive, there was a heightened, you know, um, with Dame Deborah's story in the news, um, there was just the opportunity there um, because a corporate can in many instances kind of, you know, show that they're doing their bit being socially responsible. so I tried to utilise that kind of time. And it was really successful um, from that. Um, Bowel Cancer UK did a kind of a campaign around it. So Stuart Machen, who's our CEO, did a call out to the rest of the industry to just join, um, join us in putting the symptoms on Roll. And at the same time he, was, he did that, Bowel Cancer UK got, all of their supporters to call on like a social media campaign to get their supermarkets or wherever sh- they shopped, asking them to join this campaign, get on a roll. Um, and I mean, within, I don't know, a couple of weeks of m s announcing that they were doing it, uh, literally all of the big supermarkets and retailers had got on board. And it was just... The idea was just to get the symptoms somewhere where Mm -hmm. it was easy to consume because we're overwhelmed, aren't we, with, oh, these are the symptoms for this, this is symptoms for that. Um, Having them there just means somebody might um, read them and get to a GP sooner than they might have done previously. Um, so it's all about that awareness piece. and at and s, we've put them through all of our um estate bathrooms as well, both public and employee facing. So um, yeah, it's been great. And I to can see imagine and the momentum around it,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be kicking off like such a, I mean, it was called on a roll, like it's that was amazing to use the you know where you were working what you were doing who you knew to put it somewhere that it makes so much sense and probably a young person at some point who's having the symptoms that's right there can then take that into the doctor and say I know that these are the symptoms like you know I need to be seen. Yeah. Um, I mean it,
2: it's one small part of a giant jigsaw isn't it when it comes to ensuring people are diagnosed early um awareness is just the start of that um but yeah i'm i'm hoping it it does that and we like i know that it's helped people we've had people contact um the charity and there was one that i found really moving was just they'd written on the bottom of the sticker in the bathrooms that oh, it's going to make me cry. That It's like, um, this sticker saved my life. Um, and they'd been to the doctors after having seen it in a Marks and Spencers and then been diagnosed with bowel cancer, but at an early enough stage that it was treated. And I mean, that's all that you can, well, all I could ask for to come off the back of that campaign. Wow. Um, and I just, you know, I think for me this a lot I know people use social media, people talk about their cancer journeys, but I think a lot of people think that if they're not sharing on social media their own personal story that they can't make a change somehow. And I just think it's important for people to know that if everyone has their strengths, how you're helping people you don't if you if you can't help people, you don't have to help people. There are people out there like myself who want to do that and will do it. If you're helping, and I don't know, Sarah down the road with her shopping, like all of it plays into supporting people through the diagnosis. And it's it's really, well, I think it's really important it's and really like- important to not put pressure on yourself to kind of change the world. But knowing that, you know, something you do can make a difference in someone's
0: life. Absolutely. And what I hear from both of you is this kind of combination of of creativity, of passion, um, of advocacy, both for yourself and like what you want from your life. But then, you know, when it's time for other people and there are times not to do things and just focus on yourself because that's a massive part of it. And then, yeah, kind of looking at what strengths you have. I, this has been such an incredible conversation and both of you have been through so much and, and just really appreciate you sharing it because I know that people that are listening to this are, you know, they've tuned into this episode um, because there isn't as much conversation about genetic cancers and the how family and, you know, potentially having children um, and whether you wanted to, whether you were planning to, you know is really being discussed so thank you so much to both of you for sharing everything today and and also what i heard is both of you having your cancer friends you know, um, your your buddies, like how vital that was going through mm-hmm. it. So if you're out there, if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, you know, I want I want to meet other people that get it, um, go to shinecancersupport.org. You will see there's loads of different things to be involved with. There's networks, there's online groups, there's meetups in person. There are programs to go to. So um, check those out. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, podcast let us know we really really want to hear it um so give us a like subscribe um write a review that's always great and it helps other people find us thank you to the amazing radio facilities who sponsor our podcast and thank you again to helen and cara till next time bye. 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 bye not your grandma's cancer show yes,